0: That's BlueNile.com.
1: You guys, at long last, I have come to the conclusion that if Rudy Giuliani did not exist, we would have to invent him.
2: Could we just not, just (laughs) not have Rudy
0: Giuliani? I would be okay with that. You would deprive us of all of this joy? It's like the opposite of it's a wonderful life. (laughs) Like a world without Rudy and everything's just amazing.
3: Rudy Giuliani, I think you're all misinterpreting him. You're thinking of him as a former mayor, as the president's lawyer, as a political figure. But Rudy is actually a piece of performance art.
1: Oh, so that's how he ended up in the Borat movie. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Oh, God.
1: Very nice. Very nice. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the That's Rudy edition. I am Shane Harris. It sounds like a sitcom, doesn't it?
3: I think you have to say it like this That's
1: Rudy! <laughs> That's <variety> Rudy! <laughs>
0: I mean, That's this man needs Rudy. a variety
1: show. <clears throat> That's Rudy! He does. He needs like a variety show where he pops up in like strange scenarios. Like there he is, like at the Wendy's serving your French fries. and Like there he is in a hotel room with a woman he thinks is 15 years old. That's Rudy. And there he is with an agent of the Russian Federation <laughs>
3: receiving dirt on Joe Biden and his son Hunter.
1: That's Rudy. <laughs> Oh, my God. It'll be very, very popular in Moscow. Uh, I am here in the Virtual Jungle studio with my good friends, Tamara kaufman Ben-Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys.
2: Hi. Hi. Jane.
1: Uh, Rudy Giuliani sadly cannot be with us <laughs> any time <laughs> you want to come on the podcast, man.
3: He seems to be too busy texting with somebody he thinks is
1: Ivanka but isn't. <laughs> Wait, did that happen too?
2: Yeah, uh, uh, right now on Twitter as we tape. As
1: we speak, this oh, is happening. God. Oh, my God. All right. Well, we may or may not get to all of that. Whew. It's it's a, It's been a big week, you guys, and there's only 13 days to go to the election. On the podcast this week, Rudy Giuliani finds himself at the center of a misbegotten effort to interfere in the 2020 election. American diplomats and intelligence officers complain they're being left in the cold after mysterious attacks, and the Trump administration sends an unusual envoy to Syria to discuss U.S. hostages. All right, let us start with the beloved former America's mayor, uh, Rudy Giuliani. A lot has happened, actually, uh, since we were uh, recorded last week. I'll briefly kind of just get the highlights. Uh, Of course, the big story being that the New York Post Uh, Ran a story, I will just say, suspiciously sourced, let's put it that way, uh, alleging that they had emails from the laptop of Hunter Biden that purported to show some kind of nefarious activity by the former vice president's son, possibly connected to his father, which we will all remember has been basically the subject of Rudy and Donald Trump's obsession for the better part of the past year. Fair to say, I think, that the story became not what was on the laptop, allegedly, but the way that the contents of said laptop found their way to the New York Post. And of course, the reaction on social media to this story, which we're going to talk about uh, a day or so after that story, we broke a story uh, in the Post that back in December of 2019, as the president was about to be impeached, Rudy in one of his gambits to Ukraine to dig up dirt on the Bidens, Uh, his communications were incidentally intercepted as he was meeting with and communicating with assets of the Russian government, who, according to U.S. intelligence officials, were trying to use Rudy as a conduit to spread disinformation about the Bidens back to the president and to the White House. Uh, And then we will get to Rudy's subsequent forays and maybe the Borat movie here in a second. But safe to say that as far as Rudy's efforts here to, I think, clearly interfere at the last minute and try and create some kind of October surprise analogous to 2016, um, Susan, I'll come to you with this first. We saw this week that several former intelligence officials, including former directors of the CIA, examining this whole caper, uh, signed an open letter saying that they felt that this operation, which this was how they called it, had the characteristics of a Russian information operation. So, drawing parallels to the hack and dump of Democratic emails back in 2016. Now, the letter emphasizes that there is no evidence of that, but that these officials' experience in this terrain leads them to suspect some kind of Russian influence or hand in this. You're a former intelligence official. You know the Mueller report on Russia's information operation in 2016, backward and forward. So I want to ask you first, do you think that the leaking of this material to the New York Post, allegedly from this laptop, looks like the work of Russian intelligence?
0: Yeah, so this is where I think it becomes really difficult to... Know how to assess these stories in the absence of a credible director of national intelligence, really any credible national security official who who can actually speak to the underlying intelligence in question ordinarily and and you know before sort of the the happenings of the Trump era I would say it's wildly irresponsible for former intelligence officials to sort of speculate based on you know sort of press reports that this looks like uh, you know a Russian op- uh, information operation when there's actually no reporting that there's underlying intelligence to suggest that that's the case right so So, um, you know, certainly this has all kind of the the classic hallmarks, but without that that sort of that additional piece of, and there is some intelligence collection or reporting to support this inference. You know, you're really, really out on the out on a limb here. Um, That said, we are operating in an environment in which, you know, whenever uh, DNI Ratcliffe says, you know, this is, you know, we have no evidence that this has anything to do with Russia, he's just not credible. He's just not a believable source, Um, and so. you know, I I do think that these officials feel the need to sort of step into the void and say, you know, look, this is the way uh, we should be really, really suspicious. We should handle with care and we should sort of presumptively assume that what we're dealing with is some kind of disinformation operation because of the murky provenance of this laptop, the involvement of shady individuals like Rudy Giuliani. But at the end of the day, this is a disinformation Disinformation operation, either a domestic disinformation disinfo- operation or a foreign disinformation operation, maybe a foreign government, maybe, maybe non-state foreign actors. Uh, what it really reveals is um, much to Susan Collins' shock and dismay. Um, the president and his team did not, in fact, learn any lesson from impeachment. The president of the United States was impeached for activity- like very, very similar to this, right? Rudy Giuliani going out freelancing, attempting to dig up dirt on the Bidens. And if he couldn't get real dirt to pressure people to falsify uh, dirt on the Bidens in order to help Trump's re-election. Now, days before the election, Rudy Giuliani comes out and says, well, you know, this Delaware Mac store ended up with Hunter Biden's laptop and, uh, you know, tried to turn it over to the FBI and they wouldn't listen. And so I'm, you know, giving it to the New York Post, admittedly giving it to the New York Post because he knew that other outlets would actually undertake due diligence to try and see if the underlying story is true. And reportedly
1: Uh, tried to shop it to at least one and failed.
0: Right. Including Fox News that declined to do so, although that didn't prevent them from sort of gleefully reporting on on the New York Post story afterwards. Um, So, you know, at the end of the day, like, is it Russian disinformation? Is it something that, you know, Steve Bannon cooked up, uh, you know, on his yacht off the coast of Florida? I I don't know. It's clearly bullshit. And so and and it's clearly something that we should not take as, um, you know, presumptively accurate and should be reported based on the contents, uh, you know, and sort of repeat some of the mistakes of 2016, and instead should be approaching with a lens of this is information that is uh, possibly not even authentic, but even if it is authentic, was, uh, you know, criminally acquired and is now being leaked in order to influence the electorate before they cast their votes. We've spent four years explaining why we don't want this to happen, um, why we want the press to be really, really suspicious of this stuff and so um, I I worry a little bit about sort of the reflexive uh, sort of desire to brand something as a Russian uh, disinformation operation although there are good expert and evidence-based reasons that these individuals are are, are making this judgment um, you know that it's Russia specifically um, you know that said it's it's clearly BS and um, uh, it's sort of I, I mean it's almost comical sort of how how brazen and transparent the, the effort actually is
1: yeah and I thought to, you know, the question of whether it actually is Russia, or it's not, obviously, as an evidentiary matter, hard to establish right now. But it struck me is that just in terms of the strategy, whether it's Russian or it's Rudy, I mean, it's all the same play, right? And we do know from Now from reporting that, re- that Rudy Giuliani has been meeting with people like Andre Derkash, who the United States has openly labeled as a Russian intelligence asset, trying to do the very kinds of things, which is to inject disinformation into the media bloodstream that the Russians want to do. So whether Russia had a hand in this one. You know, A, Rudy has been meeting with Russians before to try to do precisely these kinds of things. Um, and B, this all kind of comes from the same disinformation playbook, which is not unique to Russian tradecraft. Uh Ben, go ahead.
3: I think there's uh one reason to uh suspect that it actually may not be an influence opera or a disinformation operation. Uh, which is that the Biden f- uh, family and Hunter Biden and the campaign haven't actually really denied the authenticity of the material, and and I think if the if the material were entirely for fictitious, I think they probably would do that. Uh, so my assumption is that there's some component of this material that is probably authentic stuff mixed with inauthentic stuff, or just that the material may be authentic and that it's possible that the crazy story about the computer store and the legally blind guy who's a Trump supporter who reached out to Rudy Giuliani uh, may actually be like partly true or even mostly true. To me, the much more interesting feature of this is that I don't think there's anything in the material that's been released that changes our understanding of anything, if taken as true in a material respect. And I think if you were going to invent dirt on Joe Biden, you would probably make, find something a little bit more incriminating to make up than that You know, he cares about his uh, son who's got an addiction problem.
0: Yeah, and look to this point, I, I think we're using the term disinformation operation when we could just as easily be describing this as a covert influence operation. So, right, like the, the this is this is the repeat of 2016 in which um authentic documents were nonetheless uh you know criminally obtained and released for for the purposes of influencing an election. Um, and, and so my point is is less sort of um, tied to the question of, is it real or, or fake? And more, uh, you know, are there foreign actors involved? Are there not credible domestic actors involved? Sort of, it doesn't matter either way. The, the core question is how we should understand why this material is, is being released. Because I, I do think there's a little bit of a risk of, you know, sort of normalizing it if the answer is always, well, you know, if, it, if it's true in news, work, then we're going to go ahead and report it, right? That that creates really powerful incentives to, you know, not just for Russia, but lots of different actors, including domestic actors, including non-Russian foreign actors, to, to engage in this playbook over and over again. So I think the question here, here is, have we learned the lesson of 2016, both the electorate and the media?
2: I, I think, too, there's an important distinction between the authenticity of documents and the newsworthiness of what they contain. Like the fact that they are accurate, that they are in fact emails from Hunter Biden, doesn't necessarily make them newsworthy. And it's notable that the allegation, the specific allegation, in the New York Post story is that Hunter Biden arranged a meeting between a senior Burisma official and the vice president. And the vice president's campaign has denied absolutely that any such meeting took place and, you know, shown the calendars of the vice president's schedule that, you know, as they say, they have zero record of this anywhere. And then, the uh, you know, the other thing that was released were these text messages from Biden to his son in drug treatment. And, you know. He says, I love you. Right. Like, what is newsworthy about this? So I also think that one of the lessons we have to learn, which goes way, way back to before 2016, is that just because something got hacked doesn't mean that there's anything interesting, newsworthy or scandalous about it.
1: So let's talk about the social media company's response to this story, because this also harkens back to 2016, in which companies like Facebook and Twitter, primarily, you know, learned some very hard lessons about letting their platforms be exploited by whether foreigners in that case, or frankly, the lesson learned was anyone who wanted to exploit the platform to amplify misinformation or disinformation Ben, let me come to you first on this. Facebook and Twitter moved with pretty remarkable speed. Like, I mean, within, I think, hours, if not an hour, uh, to limit the spread of these of this particular story, the first New York Post story. But it's not entirely clear why they did it. Twitter in particular seemed to be offering differing explanations, uh, including at one point the fact that there was personally identifiable information in the material itself. I think Twitter and or Facebook talked about a ban on hacked materials. It wasn't clear if these materials were hacked or what do you mean by hacked? Facebook didn't totally halt the story outright, but it downgraded the story in its algorithms, which was supposed to make it harder to find and to promote while it waited for third party fact checkers to have a look. Usually they do that the other way around. You do the fact checking first. So I'm interested as, as as a first question in what you think about how fast these companies reacted and why and if they acted too fast.
3: So I had a different reaction to this than a lot of people did. Most people seemed to be quite critical of the social media companies for acting too quickly, acting with in a fashion that was inconsistent with their prior policies, acting in a fashion that they couldn't quite explain. I actually liked the social media companies' reaction, which was hey, we may have in the immediate run up to the election. We may have an active information operation going on. Let's slow everything down, stop everything, figure out what's going on before we let this information travel around the world at 300 million miles an hour. And let's just do it fast. And I actually think the, like, slow stuff down, and then If you decide, as Twitter eventually did, that you probably shouldn't throttle it, then you stop. And I don't know that that's not a perfectly reasonable uh, approach for them to take. Now, was it consistent with their prior policies, at least as operationalized? No. Is it a little bit arbitrary and capricious? Yes. Would I rather they be erring on the side... In the two weeks before the election, of aggressiveness toward possible influence operations that are at somebody's, you know, some individual human person's expense with respect to their PII and privacy. And yeah, I'm not, that doesn't bother me. You know, the New York Post has a right to publish material, they don't have a God given right to have Facebook amplify that material. And you know, and to everyone complaining about Twitter, you know, if you want a a social media site where you can, you know, just randomly distribute Hunter Biden's PII, I'm sure Parler will let you do that. So I, I, did they sort of screw up? Yeah, but I actually like this screw up better than I like the one in the run up to the last election.
2: Can we also just spend a minute on the traditional media companies response? Yeah. Like, um, I think it's notable how careful a lot of traditional media, both broadcast and print or cable news and print, were to wait, get their own sense of whether they thought the post story had credibility and whether or whether it was disinformation. And and then to report on the controversy, I think doing a reasonably good job of not amplifying the specific allegations. And that too says to me that there have been some lessons learned since 2016.
1: Yeah. And I'll just say as the, I guess, the the resident representative of the, of the mainstream media, this is a question that we've imagined for months that we were going to have to grapple with. Uh, I think we all sort of presumed that it would come in the form of anonymously dumped materials publicly presumably from Russia and not from you know Rudy Giuliani and the Phantom hard drive but you know Tammy's right that I mean I think we all approach this with a real concern about not making the story the content of the of the leak but rather about the leak itself and trying our best to also understand the content and whether it had validity and needed to be reported on in 2016. I think it's fair to say most of the coverage was about the content of the emails and the, the, the fact that they had been leaked in a Russian intelligence operation was, you know, almost a secondary matter that just didn't get nearly the same attention as, you know, gefilte fish and Hillary Clinton's speeches and all the rest of it. Um, I have no transition for the next, for the next piece. Unless anybody can think of one for me. Gefilte fish? Gefilte fish. It's almost like someone's been shooting a wave into my brain and I can't think.
2: You can only think about gefilte fish.
1: That's it. <laughs> it's the gefilte fish ray. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
2: Can you imagine anything grosser than a gefilte fish ray gun?
1: I don't know why the Russians don't try that. But according to, or somebody... Stories out this week in the New York Times and in GQ. There are a number more diplomatic personnel and intelligence officers suffering from mysterious headaches, vertigo, and other ailments uh, that we first heard about, I think, a couple of years ago now. Uh, as affecting personnel who were stationed in Cuba, I believe, uh, at the U.S. section down there. Um, The Times and the the GQ both did big stories. On these strange symptoms that these personnel are experiencing that some people are attributing to possibly the result of some kind of attack with a microwave weapon. Uh, Russia kind of becomes the primary suspect for a lot of reasons, uh, maybe which we'll get into in some of these. And as I said, we've heard these stories before, but they had largely been confined to personnel who were working in Cuba which actually gave rise to the name uh, of the syndrome, informally that some of these people were experiencing, uh, which was dubbed Havana Syndrome. Now, I, I think that the scientific you know, there is no real scientific conclusion uh, on these ailments. Some people have attributed it to some kind of, you know, mass delusion or stress disorder, but there's never been uh, uh, any firm evidence on exactly what's caused this. But what we're finding now, of course, is that there are just many more people. Who are reporting this, and notably, CIA personnel who are speaking out about this as well, which sort of points towards the question of, wait a minute, if it's these, if it's intelligence officers as well as diplomats, is there does this speak to some kind of motive uh, for a country that might want to be doing this? So, Tammy, I want to start with you on this and just talking a bit about the diplomatic implications of this, in, in large part too, because the story in GQ, especially, is alleging not just that U.S. personnel were attacked. Overseas, which is a significant thing in its own right, but that a, a government employee and her family were also attacked in the United States.
2: Yeah, I mean, kudos to to all of the reporters who put these stories together. Julia Yaffe's story in GQ is incredibly rich in detail. And you know, what do we take away from this? We take away from this that. We've had public servants from the State Department, the Commerce Department, and CIA, and the White House, all of whom seem to have been attacked by this by this weapon, um, or to be suffering from a set of symptoms that that are associated with what's now called Havana Syndrome. We learn that the attacks have taken place not only in Cuba and China. Which had been reported on before, but also in Moscow, in Poland, and in the United States. We learned that the different federal agencies for whom these people, these victims work, have dealt with their claims in very different ways. And, you know, Yafi's story in particular talks about how unhappy one retired, now retired uh, CIA officer is about the way the CIA has dealt with his case, it sounds as though the State Department has handled the cases of their diplomats from China even worse than CIA. And this has all gotten to the point that now both the House Permanent Select uh, Committee on Intelligence and Senator Gene Shaheen's office are directly involved in sort of demanding answers from the executive branch um, because they're not taking care of people. They're not giving them access to the medical care that these people believe they should get. There are all kinds of other fascinating tidbits in Julia Yaffe's story, including how U.S. government officials who have been investigating these attacks have come up with their theories about who's responsible, and particularly a theory about Russia's responsibility, using things like publicly available cell phone metadata. It's like, wow, that's not rocket science. That's not even like covert sources and methods. That's something you can buy on the internet. And yet the, the government seems extremely reluctant to publicly assign responsibility for What's what's very serious and really has debilitated these people, and you know, seems to be a widespread enough scope of attacks that we can't really say that American public servants are safe anywhere um, from these kinds of attacks, unless and until you know there's some kind of strong deterrent or exposure, and that doesn't seem to be forthcoming. So I I think it's really it's a situation where there are a lot of allegations swirling about motives about why the president doesn't want to be mad at russia or doesn't want or the state department doesn't want to upset relations with china but the fact is you know we just don't know enough about about what is known about how hard a case we can make that the russians might in fact be responsible for this and we also don't know whether there might be something else going on at cia uh, some kind of preparation to respond to this in a covert manner rather than going public with accusations, but it's very, very troubling to think that there are literally dozens of families who um, devoted their careers you know to serving our interests abroad and are now unable to work and being mistreated by their home agencies because of something that they suffered as a result of their work
0: look to to tammy's point you know I, I, I think sort of the most um, disturbing allegation is less sort of this question of whether or not uh, the CIA is covering up belief in Russian responsibility and more sort of that the CIA is denying the injuries of people, you know, sort of injuries that people sustained on duty um, and and denying sort of the um, at least uh, facially apparent links. Um, and so, you know, I think that's um, sort of the, the question of responsibility really is a secondary one and the first question you know it, it appears to be sort of a genuine medical mystery not just exactly uh, you know if this was an actual attack although they do appear to have um, uh, to have come to that conclusion in the uh, Cuba and Chinese cases um, but also what the nature of these injuries are you know why some people are affected differently than others um and I think what you know it's we could imagine sort of a, a reasonable and good faith disagreement on the subject and, and what the actual evidence shows, but we are seeing government, uh, you know, government officials, civil servants um, who are trying to operate within the system are trying to get the support they need um, for what they understand to be an injury that they sustained in the course of duty, and they are not getting that support, and instead they're being met with, um, you know, not uh, sort of reasonable questions about the extent and nature of their injuries and also support but instead sort of a, a denialism. And so I think one of the things that's really remarkable is though, uh, while this story has been percolating, you know, for a while, and we've sort of, we've heard bits and pieces of it, um, the fact that these individuals felt the need to go on the record, um, that really is about uh, calling out a failure of their home agency. I think it's about uh, deep dissatisfaction with Gina Haspel's leadership on the question. Um, and, and I think that's sort of, we should understand that um, a little bit separately from kind of the, the policy questions, of whether or not uh, Russia is responsible and, and why or why not the White House might, uh, uh, you know, want to make that attribution public or, or might want to avoid reaching that conclusion. Um, but the separate question is sort of what do we owe to civil servants who are who are injured, um, uh, you know, and how much of this is being driven by uh, evidence and, and science and are people really getting the support they need? And so the mere fact that uh, that these people felt the need to you know go out and go on the record with this, I, I, I do think is is just a sign of, of real failure within the CIA itself.
1: Yeah. And I think to that point, you know, I've talked to intelligence officials, you know, current and former, and, you know, I mean, Mark Polymeropoulos is on the record about this and in, in, in Julia's story, who feel a great amount of frustration at the director. And I have to say, it's, it's not, you know, griping. I mean, there's a lot of the people have given her a lot of well, a very wide berth in dealing with President Trump and understand That I think her intentions are to try and stay out of the White House's crosshairs at all times to prevent, you know, somebody who is more of a political hatchet man from taking over this agency. So they understand that impulse, but it's in moments like this where they feel like she's turning her back on Medical issues, or like in Mark's case, you know, not granting him the medical referrals he needs to go to specialists in this particular ailment that he's that he's suffering from. That it feels like, even in these kind of petty bureaucratic ways, that the leadership at the agency doesn't have their back right now, and it's sort of stressed a lot of these people to the breaking point where they're even starting to wonder, like, whose side is she on? And it's just a remarkable thing because I, you know, in The whole history of the Trump administration, with a lot of people who I talk to in in the intelligence community, there has been this sense of, you know, a career person will hold it together for us and will, you know, keep us on the right path. But when they feel like, you know, those career instincts are not kicking in and protecting their own. Suspicions start to get raised about all other kinds of aspects of how she's running the place. I mean, you know, people saying is she closer to the president than we thought? Uh, you know, and really kind of sort to of even question motivations. And it's interesting to see how much bad blood has been stirred up by this particular incident. I think it's been something that's actually been kind of boiling beneath the surface that hasn't come out. Uh, and now that it is, it, it's understand. It's more understandable to me, I guess, why some of the Career kind of rank and file people are having real anxieties about the leadership because they've been hearing these stories, you know, that in their mind make them feel like someone is turning their back on them.
2: Yeah, look, Shane, I think that's a really important point. And I also think it gets to an issue we've talked about with with respect to a number of executive branch agencies and cabinet officials who, you know, may in fact be caught between a rock and a hard place, maybe trying to protect their institution in some ways by yielding to the president's proclivities in other ways. And so they get seen as um, spineless or disloyal when they're really trying to, you know, shield from worse consequences. And there is a suggestion in, in the GQ story that that's what's going on with Haspel here as well, but who knows, right? We, it's very, very hard to know from outside. I think the thing that I, that I think about on the medical side, as I was reading these articles, you know, I am an ex a Gen Xer, so this will be familiar to people of my generation, but maybe not to younger folks. I kept thinking of Gulf War Syndrome. There was a, you know, a number of folks who fought in nineteen ninety-one in the Iraq and Kuwaiti desert and came back with a, a weird cluster of symptoms. And for a long, long time, the military, the Pentagon told them it was in their heads or it was just PTSD. Um, And it really took a huge amount of pressure from Congress and advocacy by military families to get it recognized as what it ultimately was shown to be, which was a discrete medical set of consequences uh from exposure to a bunch of chemicals that grew out of the burning of the oil wells in in Kuwait. So I, you know, I think like we may not have a medical consensus on this now, although apparently there's a National Academy of Sciences report that the State Department is withholding. <laughs> um, but we we may find out 10 years from now exactly what this was. Yeah, I think that's
3: th- that's the critical point is that these situations are dramatically harder when there is even plausible dispute as to whether the effect is real. And I think what happened here is a bunch of people started getting sick in Cuba, and some people became convinced that it was an attack, and some people became convinced that it was, you know, not, that it was a, you know some kind of mass delusion. And until you have a dispositive answer to that question, you really do end up in a situation in which people feel alienated from leadership that is not, you know, convinced that they are describing what is clearly a reality to them, but that that may not correspond in the leadership's view. And it seems to vary from agency to agency to reality. And, you know, the the point that Tamara makes about Gulf War syndrome is, you know, there's a lot of examples of that, of, uh, for example, the 9-11 first responders, a very large number of them got sick, and something of the same thing happened here, right, uh, as here, that you know, there was some question of causation. I think the more of them that got sicker and sicker, the more obvious it was that it there was a causal relationship. But these questions are, particularly when you're talking about an attack, if somebody gets shot by the Russians, uh, we all rally behind them. But if something happens and we're not quite sure what it was, and we're not quite sure whether it was an attack, and we're not quite sure if it was an attack, who did it, it becomes very hard to know how you respond to it. Do you respond to them as, uh, you know, in the extreme case, as sort of malingerers who don't want to do their jobs, or do you respond to them as victims of a, you know, serious international incident? And I think this is a situation where the more, the, more, the longer it goes on and the more people it involves, it does seem to be something real, it does seem to be something intentionally caused. And uh, I think the agencies are going to have to come around to taking that pretty seriously.
1: And I'll just make one last foot stomp on that. Uh, Referring back to Julia's piece, you know, I know Mark reasonably well, and I have to say that this is to Ben's question about, you know, I think some people suspect some of these people are faking it or malingering. Like this is just not an individual, I think, who, would do that. I mean an extremely tough, I mean practically a soldier, I mean as as far as the CIA goes, who really really wanted to keep working in his job and had like a really great promotion and was on track to do big things and just couldn't work anymore because he was having these debilitating headaches. So it's important that these kinds of stories, you know, I think get out so that people understand that this is not delusional, right? These people are suffering from something. There's still maybe a question about what it is, but important that this get out there so that there's no question that this is not just some sort of, you know, phantom of people's imagination. There's there's something going on here. Um, So let's turn now in our last segment to uh, another story of, of unfortunately, Americans abroad in crisis, Uh, the question of Americans held hostage uh, overseas, particularly in Syria. There was news this week that an American envoy had gone to Syria to talk about the possible release of Americans either held there or believed to be held there. Uh, The most prominent and well-known probably is Austin Tice, the journalist uh, who the Syrian regime, I think, has insisted uh, they don't know where he is. I'm not sure that uh, everyone who follows Austin's case believes that that's an entirely accurate statement. Susan, let me come to you on this first. And this was reporting first that appeared in the Wall Street Journal. We'll, we'll get to maybe some of the broader issues of, of hostages and what the administration has done there, which we've talked about before. But where these efforts are going to free Americans in Syria, here kind of in the 11th hour before the campaign, let's just start with the person the White House reportedly sent on this mission, uh, Kash Patel, which will be a familiar name for some of our listeners, but remind us who he is and why it struck a lot of us as an interesting choice to send him.
0: Yeah, so um, Kash Patel is a former staffer of Devin Nunes on uh, Hipsy, who uh, then went to the White House, and people might sort of be familiar because his name popped up during uh, impeachment. Uh, Basically, any time we've had a major story about the White House being involved in misrepresenting or dramatically politicizing intelligence, uh, Patel's name sort of pops up eventually. Um, So one, this is not an individual with, Um, any real credibility. Um, Two, uh, this is not an individual with deep counterterrorism expertise. And so whenever we're reading a story about uh, the White House sending someone for what are essentially the first talks with the Assad regime uh, from a White House official in a decade, uh, you know, sending a top counterterrorism official, that's not exactly who they sent. And so I, I do think that there's a reason to sort of look at this story and ask ourselves two things. One, why was it leaked now and who was it leaked by? Um, this is a pretty glowing account of Patel's service um, uh, and, and these very noble intentions. Um, it certainly is a, a pretty fluffy and puffy piece for a president who's seeking re-election, right? This uh, a president who's fighting hard to, to get Americans to come back and has had some successes and had some failures. So, look, I'll, I'll, uh, I think there's reason to, one, be suspicious of, um, you know, really how seriously the administration is actually taking this and, and what to read into this. And two, um, why this was shared with the media now and how credibly we should view kind of the underlying assertions. Um, That said, it's undeniably sort of a significant development. Um, uh, Shane, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that this is the first time I've seen reported that uh, President Trump uh, sent a private personal letter to Assad back in March trying to engage uh, sort of the hostage questions. There's sort of additional reporting in this piece about the role that Lebanon. Lebanon has played as sort of an intermediary and negotiator between the two parties. Um, uh, You know, the issue of American hostages held abroad is obviously a really, really important one. It's a, it's an area in which um, I I think a lot of people, myself included, and and we talked about this on the podcast, um, almost believe this might be an area for optimism. Right, that this sort of it checked a lot of boxes for sort of Trump's notion of of being a hero in foreign policy and making deals, and, and maybe this was an area in which the Trump administration. Um, however bizarre and corrupt and dysfunctional it was could actually make progress where others had failed. Um, It's a relatively mixed record. Um, You know, that said, I I think Austin Tice is probably the single highest profile uh, uh, hostage detained abroad at this point. Uh, And so, you know, it's not surprising that the White House would be um, attempting to engage on it. Um, And it's it's unclear, um, you know, what to read into kind of their failure to, to make any real progress. One thing that's notable here, there's no information about whether or not the intelligence community has uh, updated reporting, believing that Tice is alive, right? There, there's none of that sort of additional pieces that we would expect in a story like this of, hey, you know, the White House's interest was piqued because they they found this piece or, or because a returned hostage gave, new, uh, gave a new report or a new account. Um, It, it really is just, you know, they decided to, to, to engage, to sort of open this line of communication so um, I, that's kind of the background context, but it, it's difficult to know exactly what to make of it. Uh, Tammy, yeah, I I think
2: um, there's a little bit more that we have to go on than Cash Patel's going to Damascus. Although that was you know a an interesting piece of news, the Lebanese Interior Minister was here this past week for the second time this year. And um, Joyce Caram at The National, which is a, a UAE-based newspaper, broke the story that he was discussing the Tice case. And um, he's somebody who has played a role in releasing other hostages um, in the region over the years. So he's, he is actually a more of a trusted interlocutor for the U.S. government on hostage issues. And, you know, it's interesting that uh, parenthetically, he contracted COVID while he was here in the United States. Um, we, so we can ask whether his meetings at the White House had anything to do with that. But um, but it's clear that there is a back and forth. But like Susan said, what we don't know is that any of the things that the government in Damascus might be conveying to the U.S. government about Austin Tice or other hostages has been confirmed by U.S. intelligence. We don't know if these hostages are alive. We don't know if the government in Damascus has been able to present any proof of life. And then, you know, there's the reporting on the price that the Syrian government has apparently demanded as part of freeing hostages, which is that the United States remove all of its forces from Syrian territory. And, you know, we can have a policy debate about how big a price that is to pay at this point, but it's not it's not insignificant. It's not merely symbolic. And so, you know, the Trump administration, I think, has put an emphasis on bringing Americans home, whether they are imprisoned in other countries or hostage in other countries. And, you know, this might be a case where Trump gets to bring people home by doing something he said he wanted to do anyway, which is withdraw from Syria. And this is a way he can overrule his his generals who have been trying to get him not to do that.
3: So I actually think uh, Kash Patel is the perfect uh, envoy to the Syrians, and I made a, a brief list of reasons why I think this. Kash Patel actually has a lot of values in common with the Assad regime, and therefore is a perfect negotiator with them. He kind of, you know, speaks the, that language. The second is that you know when Kash Patel is abroad and communicating with the Syrian regime he can actually be subject to incidental collection and then he can be subject to unmasking in the intelligence reporting which would be the ultimate uh, irony for Kash Patel and Devin Nunes so i just want to congratulate kash patel on this role cuz i think it's i think it's a great one for him and may he spend much time in damascus over the next few years
1: Ben, how you and his family did not become the diplomat is just a mystery to me. <laughs> um, I do want to ask one more serious question on this, which is, <clears throat> and maybe Susan will kick this here, but whoever can take it, maybe we all want to chew on it. You know, it is, it, I think it is not incidental that this trip happens as President Trump is nearing the end of his first term. And, you know, facing the at least statistical likelihood that he is not likely to have a second term. And the Syrian ask on this reportedly is, you know, so big as to almost seem preposterous. I mean, the idea that we would you know, negotiate with a regime like this in exchange for hostages, however dearly they are missed and held in exchange for a radical adjustment to our military policy probably strikes some people as preposterous. It does not seem crazy necessarily to think that President Trump might actually do it, so one question I have for you guys is I mean, do we think it's possible that in some last ditch kind of effort to you know pull you know his version of you know what what he imagines is Reagan bringing the hostages home from Tehran that he would make some unimaginable compromise to get home American hostages
0: yeah so i i I I think anything is plausible. Whenever we think about what motivates, uh, you know, Donald Trump's uh, foreign policy, and recall that the uh, tweet announcement that we were withdrawing from troops from Syria was um, reportedly inspired by a phone call that Donald Trump had with Erdogan, um, you know. So, so in terms of sort of the speculation of, um, you know, might Donald Trump be willing to trade something sort of um, uh, unimaginable? I, I, you know, I, I don't know that he um, has the capacity to even understand sort of the, um, the particular stakes and how absurd of an, a- an ask of it is in the first place. Um, you know, I-, I think at this point, though, um, anyone negotiating with the president, um, one, the idea that there's anything can be sort of produced within the next 13 days, is, um, uh, however much I-, I wish the alternative was true, seems um, seems pretty unlikely at that point. Um, you know, the other question is whether or not, you know, foreign, uh, foreign governments, um, especially foreign governments uh, that we are not necessarily inclined to um, care a whole lot about uh, the credibility of our promises with, uh, you know, like the Assad regime, um, whether or not sort of Donald Trump's promises are worth the paper they're printed on at this point, um, right? The, the ability of the United States Congress to insert relatively significant delays into things like military movements, right, that were well past the horizon of what could occur before January 20th if Congress decided they wanted to gum up the works. Um, and so uh, that's just one sort of query uh, as as Trump potentially sort of tries to lean into foreign negotiations generally. Bashar al-Assad can check 538 as well as any of the rest of us can. Um, you know, is Trump's promise worth the paper it's printed on at this point?
2: Well, I mean, you could ask the same question about Bashar al-Assad. I'm not sure I would rely much on his promises. And, you know, if indeed I certainly think Trump is willing to do that deal. Um, As I said, he's wanted to leave Syria for a while. But, you know, if Bashar says, first, take all your guys out and then I'll give you Austin Heiss and the other hostages, you know, how, how do you hold him to that. And I think, you know, that's a really important question, especially if Damascus hasn't even provided proof of life. These questions and a couple other good ones are raised by my colleague Steve Heideman in a blog post on the Brookings website about this news on Austin Tice. So I, I would encourage folks to read it. I also think that there's maybe a contrary impulse, not only for Assad, but for others as well. I was talking to a, a friend in the in the Middle East a couple of weeks ago who said, you know, at this point, this close to the election, like Trump is offering garage sale prices. People can come in and make their demands. And, you know, the price just keeps going down because the guy wants to rack up some points before Election Day. Obviously, there's a point, you know, very close to the election where it switches, um, but I, I think, you know, that's what we saw with the UAE deal, the UAE-Israel deal, for example. Um, and I, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the Syrian calculation as well.
1: All right. Let us move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, do you want to go first? My object lesson, and as Dave
3: Barry would say, and I'm not making this up, is a proclamation issued by President Donald Trump on October 16th, 2020, entitled Proclamation On-On National Character Counts Week 2020. I think the repeat of the word on is just the kind of typo we expect from the White House, but uh, it is how it's titled. I want to just read some excerpts from this proclamation And we'll see if you guys can avoid bursting out laughing. It opens. The foundation of any free and virtuous society is the moral character of its people. Personal responsibility, integrity, and the other values which define our unique American spirit underpin our system of self-government and inspire us to continue working toward a more perfect union. As we observe National Character Counts Week, we think of the special individuals in our lives who exemplify the character qualities to which we all aspire. In looking to these examples of honor and virtue, we recognize that character is a learned attribute acquired through consistent purposeful action not an inherent trait. We must resolve to build lives and communities grounded in moral clarity in order to strengthen ourselves, our families, our communities, and our nation. So he goes on praising different kinds of people, and then he comes to this. The inherent righteousness of America's moral character has perhaps never been needed in more Than in recent months as we have battled the coronavirus pandemic. In communities large and small throughout the country, acts of kindness have touched millions of individuals and families, uniting us under one common purpose to defeat the virus. Americans have selflessly supported their neighbors in need delivering food and essential supplies to the most vulnerable, and evincing a deep capacity for generosity and caring. Medical professionals have worked long hours at great personal risk to provide care to the sick and injured, and military personnel have mobilized to provide critical medical assistance and help keep us safe. This week, As we continue to unite as one nation to both defeat the virus and safely reopen our country, we are reminded of how far decency and compassion can go in helping others during times of great challenge and uncertainty. Throughout this week, we recommit, Susan, to being more kind, loving, understanding, and (laughs) virtuous.
0: I mean, I didn't laugh, but I did throw up in my mouth a little bit.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just imagining this was the president of Norway talking.
3: Yeah. I, I just I just think it's like, who thought him issuing this statement was like, oh, great idea, Mr. President.
1: I, I'm confident you're the only one who's read it.
3: Character counts, guys. By the way, it ends with an endorsement of Joe Biden.
1: Oh Oh, okay, good. Well, <laughs> really? <laughs> No. (laughs) Um, I'll go next. Um, My object lesson starts with a question, which is, have you ever wondered what it would look like if a giant banana were orbiting the Earth?
0: I have wondered that before.
1: You have? Well, I had not. But now you can see what it would look like thanks to uh, the Madrid Planetarium. Uh, they have put together a simulation, uh, actually a video that they got from a Twitter feed called From Quarks to – well, From Quarks to QRZ, From Quarks to Quarks. Uh, check that out. Um, is
3: this going to sentient life, Shane?
1: No, no, no. no. This is just a banana. A, bana- <laughs> a banana is not sentient. <laughs> Goodness gracious. <laughs> um what it would look like from the ground if a giant banana were orbiting the earth and it starts out with like a little like you know kind of like kitschy computer diagram of a planet with the banana kind of going around it and then switches to this video from the ground of a real place which they've then superimposed what it would be like if a banana like a moon were just like rising over and spinning overhead Throughout the day, it is awesome. It's Shane. Interesting, really, why is really this cool. an interesting question? <laughs> no, it's an interesting observation.
2: I, I think the guys at the planetarium were smoking a little of the green weed.
1: Listen, you know whatever it takes, baby. I mean, because it's awesome video, and like now you know. I mean, when the giant banana does arrive, which I mean, obviously it will. This is how you know what it's to look like. This is really preparing you for the moment i um, like it
2: it's a you, little joy Shane, you for the moment
1: <laughs> i want to get on the banana and go live in the banana it's plenty of food and we know how i feel about bananas but i would make an exception if it meant i didn't have to live on this rock for that much longer props by the way to scott rogers for uh, hat tipping me to this uh which we will put on the show page check it out uh susan
0: um, so my object lesson is a little bit of a bummer. My object lesson is the New York Times at War uh, feature, which has been part of the New York Times Magazine, sort of on and off from 2009, um, and is this week sort of officially uh, turning down the lights, as Lauren Katzenberg, who's the um, the editor, put it. Um, it's uh, uh, just been a source of really... Um, interesting, in-depth reporting on uh, wars and, and conflicts that the United States is engaged in around the world, um, largely written by correspondents who themselves have experience um, uh, in the military and in combat. Um, and it's it's been a, a really valuable uh, source of perspective and, and coverage that otherwise, uh, I think, largely gets ignored. Um, and so just a, a bummer to see it uh, shuddering this week and, um, and like a little bit of a sad comment that New York Times that war is ending before the war themselves uh, is ending. Uh, You know, let's insert your forever war joke there. But just my object lesson is, uh, you know, their archive is still up, um, and and a lot of their work really is sort of timely and and, and uh, endures and is interesting even to read today. Um, And so just a thank you to that team for their coverage. Um, And I'm excited to see what they'll be doing next. Um, But admittedly, I'm disappointed that it, it will no longer be there.
2: Wow, that is a bummer. Yes. And the New York Times is no longer at war, but <laughs> exactly. we are. Yeah, indeed.
1: Well, you can definitely go check out that archive now because we have reached the end of the show today. Rational Security, of course, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com where we're selling space bananas this week
3: rational security branded giant bananas available
1: at the lawfare and now i know what they look like when they are satellites i'm very very impressed uh you can follow us on twitter at our security you can of course find us on facebook i don't think we're being downgraded there yet and you can still share us on twitter as far as i know uh whenever you download the podcast please leave a rating and review it really helps us out and helps others find the show as well we appreciate it our audio engineer this week is zachary frank from from goat rodeo this show is produced and edited by jen patya howell uh music this week by rudy giuliani and his unsurprisingly incoherent rendition of little richard's tutti frutti (laughs) ah rudy it makes no sense at all and it's like you know hunter biden and 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 there's a and it's just like there's just too much it's too much Barisma burritos, a wop bam boom. Thank you. <laughs> Sophia Yan would play us out probably with a little more flash. On behalf of my good friends Susan Hennessy, Tamara Mark Wittis and Ben Wittis. I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you next week. Bye bye.